Hello, I'm Derek Thorne and this is the audio news programme from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And in this special edition, we'll be looking at mental health over the world. A series of papers has recently been published in The Lancet, looking at how mental health contributes to the disease burden worldwide and what needs to be done about it. Anna Lacey met some of the key authors in the series and she began by speaking with Graham Thornicroft of King's College London about the scale of the problem. Every year, at least a quarter of all the adults in the world will have a mental illness. So that's an incredible scale of the challenge that we face. Indeed, over our lifetimes, up to a half of all adults will have a mental illness. And what does that translate to in terms of deaths? Well, for example, our best estimates that about 800,000 people a year die of suicide and 90% of those people have a mental illness. So you've been talking today about the idea of there being no health without mental health, which suggests in some way that there's a connection between physical and mental Mm -hmm. well-being. Why do you think that that kind of connection actually exists? What evidence is there? Well, there's strong evidence in a number of respects. First of all, we know that there is a so-called comorbidity, so that many physical conditions, let's say TB, malaria, HIV, also affect people in a way that have detrimental effects on the mental illness, for example, depression. But also there are other um, ways in which these interrelationships work. For example, people who are depressed are less able to take their medication for HIV and AIDS. So you get a poorer outcome for people who have both depression and who have HIV. But it goes even beyond that. And there's an an idea called diagnostic overshadowing. And what this means is that people who have a mental illness and a physical illness quite often will have the physical illness treated when they go to general healthcare settings, maybe to casualty or to a primary care practitioner, and either they won't have the mental illness recognised at all or it won't be treated very well. But beyond that, there's evidence now that people, for example, who have heart attacks and who have a mental illness receive worse treatment. They have fewer um, diagnostic tests, they have fewer interventions, and in fact the death rate for people with heart attacks and who have mental illness is about twice as much as people who have heart attacks without mental illness, adjusting for everything else. So this isn't anything to do with stigmatisation of having a mental health problem? Yes, it is. There is a type of of out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude among many physical health practitioners. And in fact, some of these people have chosen to go into physical health because they actually don't feel comfortable working with people with mental illnesses. Another way of looking at this is what happens to people with mental illness when they go to casualty. And if they present, for example, with pain, maybe it's query appendicitis, then quite often the people in casualty will say, we think this is all in your mind and it won't be investigated as much as somebody who isn't suspected as having a mental illness. The fact that there there could well be a quite a strong connection between physical and mental, does this mean that then they should perhaps be treated together? Well, there are strong grounds for putting mental and physical health much closer together than they, we have them today. For example, rates of physical illness are high among people with psychotic disorders. So we see high rates of pulmonary disease, high rates of cardiovascular disease. And it's no surprise because, for example, rates of smoking are higher in people who've got schizophrenia, rates of exercise are lower and diet is worse. So with limited funds in some of these low to middle income countries, do you suggest that people should perhaps move some of it away from physical illness and moving it towards mental, knowing that there's only so many resources they can use in the first place? Well, first of all, in policy terms, it's clear that governments recognise that the challenge of mental illnesses is one of the major public health difficulties they face. And indeed, up to a quarter of all the global burden of all conditions comes from mental disorders. Secondly, they need to think about the ways in which mental illness and physical illness interrelate 
relate to each other because of what we discussed. For example, the higher rates of physical illness among people with mental illness, the poorer rates of adherence to medication for physical illness, and the ways in which physical illness can actually cause mental illness, for example, depression. So all of those have to be taken seriously by governments in thinking about how they respond and putting this at a higher priority in terms of their expenditure. That was Professor Graham Thornicroft from the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London. Now, although it's clear that mental health is neglected, finding a solution is not going to be easy. Mental health covers a vast range of conditions, and restricted budgets mean that choices have to be made. Vikram Patel from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine talked to Analasi about where money should be spent first and how the new systems could work in practice. In our series, we believe that we should be beginning to focus on those conditions for which we have the best evidence for affordable and effective treatments. Clearly, that means there's a hierarchy of conditions. There's many different mental health problems, as you know, and we have highlighted those for which the evidence for cheap and effective treatments as being the priority conditions for which scaling up of services should be focused on. So one of those you looked at was depression. Mm -hmm. Um, How would you try to improve that? Well, I think the evidence base suggests that there are really two major strands of treatment. The first is antidepressants for those who have severe depression. uh, And the second are short or brief psychological treatments. Uh, One particular model that we demonstrate uh, through a randomized control trial in Uganda is interpersonal therapy, just as an example, really. So what we're really advocating is these two treatments being delivered according to what's available in terms of resources in all societies of the world. The reason we advocate these two also is because they're cheap and they can be delivered by non-specialists. When you say non-specialists, does that mean what, you just hand out a handbook and anybody could do it? No, not exactly, no. I think, for example, for the antidepressants, what we're saying is whoever in the healthcare system is accredited to give medication, for example, it could be a nurse practitioner, it could be a general practitioner, that person could be very easily trained to diagnose and prescribe antidepressants. With psychological treatments, again, it's similar. But in fact, you don't even need health workers to deliver psychological treatments. You can take community workers, community volunteers even, and train them. But there is a critical issue here. You do need some degree of supervision and support for these people. Do the people who might be giving this kind Mm -hmm. of treatment, are there not problems where they might have stigma attached to mental health problems and trying to get over and saying you might want to actually look after these people? Well, of course, yes. I think I think that's one reason why we don't address mental health needs is because of the pervasive stigma around mental illness. So clearly, any individual level intervention, for example, diagnosing and treating depression, must always be combined with a public health or a social intervention to destigmatize mental illness. And I think we've got a really good model for this, and that's HIV-AIDS. Let's not forget 10 years ago, there was enormous stigma around HIV-AIDS, and no one wanted to treat anyone with HIV-AIDS. That's only 10 years ago, and look how far that particular movement has gotten the condition of HIV-AIDS. I believe we should be inspired by those examples and pretty much implement a similar kind of approach for mental illness. What about other illnesses such as things like schizophrenia, ones that lead to high levels of, say, suicide? What kind of things could be put in place to try and deal with those as well? Well, for schizophrenia, we use the same model as with depression, which is essentially uh, using effective treatments that are cheap, for example, antipsychotic medication with community care. So for schizophrenia, it's again a very treatment model. For suicide, though, one can really look at prevention. And prevention for suicide can happen at many different levels. At one level, the improving the diagnosis and treatment of depression is clearly an important intervention. However, we could also argue that the larger social pressures that we know are associated with suicide, for example, gender-based violence or acute insecurity, these are things that can be challenged 
through social interventions, and we believe that they will also be effective in reducing or preventing suicide. But although many of these ideas, they, they sound like yeah. very good, well-thought-out mm-hmm. systems, how do you think that these are going to be able to be coordinated when many of these low- and middle-income countries are already being stretched in many other directions and pressures elsewhere, be it the economy, be it war, fighting, that kind of thing? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll really answer that in a single word, integration. What that means is that when one is doing any social policy intervention, for example, a social policy intervention around economic reforms, it's important to address and be aware of that there could be unexpected mental health consequences that one can actually anticipate and prevent. I'll give you the example of the suicides of farmers in central India who really are killing themselves because their cotton crop is no longer profitable on account of economic reforms. If this had been anticipated, these farmers could have been encouraged to shift to other crops or been provided some additional debt relief to tide over their difficult economic situation. Similarly, at the more individual level, our message is integration. We're not asking for a mental health program in every primary health centre. What we're asking is to make sure the effective treatments for mental illness are made available in the primary health centre and the primary health centre staff are trained and supervised to deliver those treatments. We're not asking for psychologists and psychiatrists. So what do you think that governments really need to do next in order to really make this work and really put these things into practice? If I had to choose one immediate priority, it is to ensure that mental health is included in its primary and community health programming in all countries. And we have shown that it is affordable and it is effective and it is feasible. Vikram Patel from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Also present at the launch of this series was Shekhar Saxena, a coordinator in mental health for the World Health Organization. He spoke to Anna Lacey about the kind of package that countries could put into effect and how much that might cost. Mental health care largely depends on skilled human resources along with the help of some psychopharmaceutical agents, uh, that's medicines. It doesn't require very sophisticated equipment, it doesn't require uh, the ultra-modern scientific investigations. So what we are advocating for is a basic mental health care package which can look after psychotic illnesses including schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, depression, anxiety, alcohol problems. If a basic health care package can look after these problems, we are happy. And that, fortunately, can be delivered at a very small cost, which is affordable to most of the countries. So what kind of costs are you talking about? We're talking about $2 per person per year in low-income country and between 3 to $4 per person per year in a middle-income country, which, at this point of time, is affordable, but only when mental health becomes one of the major public health priorities, which, unfortunately, is not so at this point of time. In many countries where mental health services are currently in a quite dismal state, do the governments and the leaders in those countries even believe that many of these mental health problems are a real issue? In terms of understanding, it has improved in the last 10 years. So majority of public health planners and political leaders have become aware of the importance of treating people with mental disorders. However, their increased awareness has not been still translated into increased resources, which is what the need is now because there is sufficient evidence that delivery packages are there and services can work to improve the lives of people with mental illness. Dr. Shekhar Saxena talking there from the World Health Organization. And that's the end of this special report on global mental health. But do keep looking out for more news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's audio news programme. Thanks for listening and goodbye.